Greetings in the Master's name. The Lord is risen. The typical or standard response to that is, he is risen indeed. Now, where you are, um, I don't know if you responded or not, but I'll give you a chance here. I'll say it, and wherever you are, however you're listening, you can say it. The Lord is risen. Okay, thank you. Made me think about the song number 128 in the church hymnal. The Lord is risen indeed. Uh, for the uh, a passage here to start with, uh, turn to First Chronicles chapter 24 in your Bibles, if you're following along in your Bible. Now, this is maybe a strange passage to begin an Easter message with. The setting is near the end of David's reign. He ruled around 1000 BC from about uh, 1010 BC to 970 BC. Uh, he's not only stockpiled a tremendous amount of material for building the temple, but here he is organizing the workers, the descendants of Aaron. <clears throat> Eliezer's family is bigger than Ithamar, so uh, Eliezer's descendants are divided into 16 groups or courses and Ithamar's into eight groups or courses for a total of 24 to serve in the work of the tabernacle by turns. Now, verse uh, 23, oh, chapter 23, the last verse in chapter 23 says that they should keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the holy place and the charge of the sons of Aaron, their brethren, in the service of the house of the Lord. And then uh, chapter 24 starting. Now, these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. So divided Ithamar's uh, family uh, descendants into 16 groups. And, uh, well, let's see, Eliezer's into 16 groups and Ithamar's into eight for 24 groups. And so uh, down through chapter 24 to verse 18, we have the 24 groups identified. I want you to notice particularly verse 10. It says the eighth to Abijah. Now, if we turn over to Luke chapter 1, verse 5, talking about uh, Zachariah's service in the temple, uh, John the Baptist's father, and it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abijah. 970 years after this work of the tabernacle was put in place, it is still functioning. Think of all that transpired over that time in Israel's history. Uh, Solomon, uh, a time of great prosperity and accomplishments. Then after him, the divided kingdom, uh, civil war, uh, the northern kingdom in steady decline, injustice, oppression, uh, finally conquered in a horrible siege and carried away. Uh, the southern kingdom had some good kings, some bad kings. I uh, remember in the time of Hezekiah, the book of the law was found in the temple. Evidently, things had deteriorated to the point that God's word had essentially disappeared. Can you imagine such a time? And then the horrors of a siege, being carried away captive. Psalm 137, it talks about hanged our harps on the willows. What about those 24 divisions of people serving the temple? There was no longer a temple. 
The small remnant returned decades later and built a temple so inferior to the glorious one of Solomon's time that the old men wept. And another 500 years passed until we come to Zechariah serving in the temple Herod built for the Jews. During those 970 years, empires rose and fell. Assyrian, Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek. But that did not change God's plan, God's work, God's moving in and through history. If as far-fetched as it would seem to think that time will last another 170 years, if it would, I doubt there would even exist in the United States of America. But whatever the world makeup would be in such a time, God's kingdom would still be there and active and conquering. All this to say, the incidents that come into our lives, as upending and troubling as they may be, they do not affect the surety, the stability of God's kingdom and plan and promises and triumph. Let's go back another thousand years before David to Abraham. God promised that in him all nations of the earth would be blessed. That was looking forward to Christ. Here we are 2,000 years after Christ was on earth looking back. Christ, God physically dwelling among man, the pivotal point of human history, all that comes and goes did not change the reality and truth of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Thinking about pandemics, what is considered the first worldwide outbreak of the bubonic plague in the 500s AD killed a third of the world's population, estimated 50 million deaths. Then in the 1300s, another major outbreak killed half of Europe's population, another 50 million, and many more worldwide. It changed history. Uh, Carolyn Martin uh, posted an article on the doc uh, about that, said she's a, a student of history, and she wrote this. The devastation of the labor force meant that those who survived had greater control of their lives. They could command greater wages and better living conditions. Class mobility became more of a reality. The merchant class became firmly established as they controlled more of the wealth than the nobles did. The Black Death laid the foundations for the Renaissance, Reformation, and the modern world. But my point is that all of this did not, does not, affect, does not alter what we have in God's word, his promises, his principles, his kingdom. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described the wise man in these words as given in Luke 6:48. He is like a man built which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock, the solid rock. That's number 251 in the church hymnal, uh, 575 in Zion's praises, same words, different tune. On Christ the solid rock I stand. His kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said we can expect tribulation. Usually we think of persecution, and that probably is the primary focus. But other trials are to be expected. We live in a fallen world, but we stand on the rock. Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now turn in your Bible to some verses in Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Talking about Jesus says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, 
according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus has overcome. He is the son of God with power. Let's look at some other verses that tell what that means to us. Uh, chapter 4, verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Uh, justification, the idea there is acquittal, acceptance with God. Because of Jesus' sacrificial death, his victory over death, he's a conqueror. He's alive forevermore. When we accept that, we too receive that resurrection power over death and evil. Uh, by the way, the title of the message is Triumph. Uh, now let's look at Romans 8, verse 11. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Twice in that verse, raised up Jesus from the dead, raised up Christ from the dead. And so talks about him dwelling in us and quickening us by that resurrection power. Quicken is to make alive, spiritual alive. You know, we're born dead. And then if we're in Christ, we die alive. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And that's talking about that resurrection power. Now at the end of chapter 8. Uh, some of the verses here towards the end, this, this wonderful, um, well, what would we say? Just a, a praise, a assurance, or whatever. I'll read, uh, starting verse 35. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. It doesn't stop with saying we're conquerors. It says we're more than conquerors. Now, there's some very difficult things mentioned here. Uh, tribulation, distress, famine, peril. And it says killed, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. I'd like to read... Uh, Something that uh, I thought about kind of in relation to Easter and victory and resurrection and so on. Uh, in relation to Sasha Krauss, uh, most of you know about that. And uh, I think this was written by Harvey Mast. It was written soon after the memorial service there at Lamp and Light. I'll read what he wrote. It was in the light of a spring-like afternoon that people gathered at the Summit Church, Farmington, New Mexico, to remember the life and ponder the death of Sasha Krauss. It was March 6, nearly seven weeks after Sasha disappeared into the darkness of a winter night. Early that night, January 18, 2020, while Sasha was finishing her day's work for the Lord, they of the darkness were slinking into their night shift. They had a lot to do before dawn. Under the cover of darkness, guided and empowered by trembling demons of the heart, they quickly snatched the lamb from Christ's flock 
a committed, thoughtful one, a defenseless one. The night covered their tracks. What happened and who did it? No one seemed to know. Of course, God knew, but he wasn't telling. They of the darkness knew too, but they weren't telling either. County sheriffs and detectives, a dog, a drone, and many volunteer searchers all looked, but they found little. $50,000 loosened not a knowing tongue. They of the darkness had simply disappeared, taking with them the booty of their battle. Then on a desolate mountain, in desperate shame and fear, they abandoned their entire loot, hiding precious Sasha in God's plain sight. At last, after long weeks of searching and praying, Sasha, asleep in death, was found and returned to her people. By the thousands, they surrounded her. Plain people of all groups, in a rare show of solidarity, rallied to honor her faith and mourn her death. Those who could not attend her burial in person attended in their hearts. A week after her burial, 500 gathered to her memorial service in the light of a spring-like afternoon. Several thousand more listened on the call line, crowding in until an overloaded system denied access. The assembly was strong and bright. Yes, there were tears, and yes, there were fears. There were some doubts and struggles and shadows, but light prevailed. God, who has been our help in ages past, was there. Sinners were offered forgiveness through Christ's blood. <clears throat> doubts and questions were offered truth. Though God did not intervene to save Sasha's mortal body, he had intervened to save her eternal soul. Her written legacy declares it. <clears throat> the glories of the coming resurrection <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> were proclaimed. Sasha will live again <clears throat> and forever. They of the darkness <clears throat> me, were offered love and forgiveness which they did not come forward to receive. After two hours of reporting, singing, and preaching, <clears throat> there was food <clears throat> and fellowship for everyone. Among the crowd, through smiles and tears, words of encouragement flowed. Meanwhile, outside, darkness gathered. Local and federal officials monitored the crowd and patrolled the grounds watching for them of the darkness. They know that someone, somewhere, carries the burden of their defeat. <clears throat> the passing of seven long weeks has not erased their guilt and fear. Hunted by the law, haunted by their memories, burdens weigh on them, pressing them down to hell. They live in darkness. Darkness lives in them. We want light. We want to know what happened. We want justice. But should we? God too wants justice because he is just. The Bible makes that clear. Forming us in his image, he made us to also be just and want justice. Our desire for light and justice is a lingering trace of divinity. So God made us and our neighbors to desire justice. No wonder the gospel teaching to forgive mistreatment, love our enemies, and return good for evil hits us crosswise. God did not wire us to respond to evil that way, but Jesus lived and died that way. 
And through new birth, God's spirit rewires and empowers us to live and die that way. The power and scope of Christian love is so rare, so unusual, so unique, that Jesus could say, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. When that love saturates our fellowships, it cannot be contained, but runs outward to our neighbors and onward to our enemies. As news of defeat in the battle with Sasha spread through the kingdom of darkness, something stirred three bitter hearts. Sasha had been ushered into the security of eternal triumph, but Satan could yet do battle on earth, and reserve forces responded to this battle cry by spewing out hate-filled words against plain people. But Jesus would turn us from the ugliness of evil to the joy of his goodness. Blessed are ye, he said, when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We are receiving a little of what the prophets, the early Christians, and the early Anabaptists received a lot. And Jesus calls us not to hear it or figure it out, but to be glad about it. Brothers and sisters, we are called beyond denial and above retaliation to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Continue in the path of Jesus and the truth of God's word. Invite them of the darkness to join us in the light. Together, we invite them of the darkness to defect from Satan's defeated army, to confess their deeds, now worrying about the demands of earthly justice, to flee the wrath of outer darkness to come. Together, we forgive them the damage inflicted upon the Krauss family and the plain community. They owe us nothing. We seek no revenge. So come, Lord Jesus, our Savior, our conquering King, the undimmed light of the world, I'd like to read one more uh, composition or reading or poem that Sasha herself wrote when she was about 17 or 18, 10 years before this happened, titled, I Do Not Walk Alone. I joyful take the upward way and press on to that glorious day, yet loneliness asserts its sway. Oh, must I walk alone? How rough and dangerous my street. I'd love to walk with nimble feet, but snares are laid with such deceit. I cannot walk alone. In quietness, God's voice I hear. Art thou alone while I am near? Oh, foolish child, shake off thy fear. I do not walk alone. Now notice this last stanza, especially in light of what happened. 10 years after she wrote this. When stress and fear shall take their toll, when cruel tyrants grasp my soul, when death and all its horrors roll, I shall not walk alone. 1 Corinthians 15, last part of the chapter, that glorious resurrection chapter. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we sing that song, O victory in Jesus, and truly it is.
few more verses here in closing. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And finally, Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. <laughs>